Open your Bibles. I hope you have them with you. Open them to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read the same section of text we read last week. I hope that is not a drudgery to you. In many ways, I could uh, not think of a better uh, text or better sermon to bring to the uh, stories that we've heard already this morning, uh, because I think you will realize very quickly the evidence of what I was preparing to teach you already today from uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. We have already heard evidence of just in modern day uh, stories or modern day experiences that we have. And I think we uh, understand that uh, uh, on, the, on the back end of that sort of uh, lesson Brenda sharing about their news is uh, just a continuation of the next uh, place that we want to uh, be pressing into and recognizing what God does in our lives. We're taking a little uh, break from our series uh, that we've been uh, uh, on and just uh, taking some time to focus on the fact that Jesus has come. It's what we celebrate in the season, uh, Christmas time with. And uh, we're going to read the, the text this morning and uh, then let it speak to us as the Lord wants it to. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit prophesying after the birth of his son, whom we call John the Baptist. This is what Zechariah said. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." God, we come to you this morning and invite you. We ask you. Perhaps we should even say we beg of you. We desire to be taught by you from your word. So would your Holy Spirit this morning be active and evident in our midst as we are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ to read your word. God, it is my desire. I believe it is our desire. We're sitting here on a Sunday morning. It is our desire to have our feet to be led or to be guided into the way of peace. I don't know there's a single one of us here that wants the absence of peace, that enjoys uh, either conflict or enjoys when things aren't right, when things aren't how they're supposed to be. God, none of us are in that place. So we ask that you would guide our feet into the way of peace. And in fact, according to your word that we've read this morning, that is exactly what happened when Jesus came as the light of the world. Teach us this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we focused on the fact that God has visited us. We read those first, uh, the, the first verse that we uh, covered this morning when Zechariah prophesied. He, he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited his people. God came to visit us. And we spent a whole bunch of time, the entire time last week, talking about what does it look like, what does it mean that the God of all creation, the most powerful being that exists, the one to whom we cannot compare anything or anyone to, what does it look like when he comes and visits us? 
What does that do to us? What does that mean? And today I want to just follow that up with what I think Zachariah's uh, logical conclusion is that when God visits us, we receive mercy. It's almost like there's, there's this formula laid out that when God visits, remember that word doesn't mean just like that he showed up and, and like came on our doorstep kind of thing, but it's that he inspected. He saw the misery we were in. He saw the bondage we were in. He saw the help that we needed, and he came to do something about it. It's the same word that we talked about in the children of Israel back in the book of Exodus. We covered that all last week, and I need to do it again today. But he saw our need and came and took care of it. And when God does that, when God looks and he sees what's going on and he recognizes what we need, then we receive mercy. Now, mercy is an important word. Mercy carries with it all kinds of things, right? Because mercy means that we are uh, not getting what we deserve, right? Mercy means we are not getting what we deserve. So when we say God has visited us and we receive mercy because of that, we are in fact implying or we're, we're reading into that that what might be coming our direction or what, might, what we might be suffering with actually might be something that we deserve. So just making sure our theology is being formed correctly. This, is, this series is, of course, to help us uh, that we can do what we ought to in the Christmas season. We can put our focus on Jesus. We can worship Him. We can be brought into the joy and the peace that we experience through Him. But let's make sure our theology is put in the right place, right? So when God came and saw our need and our bondage and the places we were suffering, well, let's just like walk that backward a little bit. Why do we suffer the things we suffer? Why are we in bondage? Why is there such travail here in the flesh, in this world? Why do we have disease and sickness? Why do we have broken relationships? Why do those things exist? Well, what's the answer? Sin. They exist because of sin. That's our theology. They exist because of sin. That's what we believe. And where did that sin come from? Who sinned? Whose problem is it, if I can put it with those words? It's us, right? If we believe the Bible anyway, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one that's righteous. No, not one. So if we follow our theology through all the way, which we don't ever really like doing because it kind of puts a spotlight on us and doesn't really come out with the answer we'd really like it to come out with, sin exists because of us and sin is the cause of all those things, the bondage and the hurt and, the, and, the, and all the, the pain, we, all the suffering, all of those things, which means if we are under that kind of bondage, is it deserved or undeserved? Nobody wants to answer that, right? Because nobody wants to say that we deserve the suffering that we have. Because none of us wants to own up to that. None of us, we don't, well, that doesn't seem fair to us. I'm telling you, it is our theology. If we believe the Bible, it is our theology. Which means, I, I, only, I, I only emphasize that not to make you feel bad at Christmas time. Although if that's what happens, that's what needs to happen. But I emphasize that because that is what allows the beauty of a word like mercy to mean anything. 
When God sees our need and comes to visit us and comes into our situation through Jesus Christ, we receive mercy. We receive something that we did not deserve. And that, my friends, is worth celebrating at Christmas time. It is worth recognizing and lifting up and declaring that when Jesus came, I received something I did not deserve. Zechariah prophesied here as he talked about God visiting. He said, this is now in verse 72, he came, Jesus, he sent Jesus, blessed be the Lord God for he's visited us and he came to show the mercy that's promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So really quickly this morning, I just want to take a little trip down memory lane as it were. But I want a little trip back in Scripture because there's a specific reference Zechariah is making. He's saying, we're receiving mercy that was promised to our fathers. And God, when he sent this Jesus Christ he's about to send, when God did that, he's remembering his holy covenant. He's remembering something that he spoke of. So let's just go back. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. You're going to see a recurring theme here over the next couple of screens here. Genesis 12, 3, God comes to a man named Abram and he makes him this promise. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the people of Israel would look at that and say, this is the promise that established us as a nation of people, as God's people. And I would say that's exactly correct. Except for, he also says that last part there, that somehow through this establishing of the nation of Israel, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A couple of chapters later in Genesis, chapter uh, 22 now, verse 18, he, he's, God reiterates his promise to Abraham, and he says, in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. A little trivia point, or a quick uh, point to make sure you're paying attention. Does anybody know what happened just before this? What did Abram just do, Abraham just do, that obeyed God's voice? That's why Abraham, God reminded him of this covenant. It's right after on the heels of when he went to sacrifice his son Isaac, whom he loved. And God, of course, stopped that. But then he says, because you have obeyed my voice, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. A couple of chapters later, this time God is making the promise to this son, Isaac, he says, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is found in chapter 26, verse 4. A couple more chapters later, chapter 28, verse 14. This time speaking to Isaac's offspring, Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I just highlight this because what God began a long, 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 long time ago. Zechariah stands as he looks at his son and he says, Blessed be God because he has visited, he's visiting his people. And when he's doing that, he's keeping a promise that he made a long time ago. Now, I think it's worth for you and I again this morning, just to pause for a moment. I think it's good for us sometime. I talk fast. We try to cover a lot of ground Sunday mornings lots of times. But it's good for us to stop and, and make sure that we, we take time to process or let stuff sink in. So I just want to remind you or invite you to think about again this morning. What does it mean to serve a God or worship a God or, or to say I belong to a God who can keep this kind of promise over the span of not just a year or a month or a week or a day, but go the other direction with that timeline. Century, millennia. What does it mean 
that the God that you say you serve and worship and adore spans that kind of time frame and can keep his promises. Seriously, think about that for a moment. Ponder that even as you celebrate Christmas this year. What does it mean that God began to speak to a man named Abraham and it took years and decades and centuries and millennia to unfold, but one day, way down the road, it was said, God is keeping his promise by sending his son Jesus. This covenant that he made, that in, through this man Abraham, all the families of the world, all the nations of the world, all the people of the world will be blessed, has come true through Jesus. If I can make a suggestion to you, I think it should elevate your opinion of God. I think it should uh, set your mind at ease greatly that when God says he's going to do something that he will do it. I think it should allow you and I to operate with some great unexplainable measure of peace because we serve a God that is spanning all of this time and all of these kingdoms and all these people who lived and all these powerful nations that rose and fell and all this other stuff that's going on, all this stuff that feels like it's outside of our control. And guess what? It is outside of our control, but it is not outside of God's control. He is showing the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. But I want to continue talking about that word mercy, and I want to just read... Before we go on here, I want to read just a couple of verses to you from a psalm. This is Psalm 98. Psalm 98 begins this way. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Put that phrase up there for you. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Now, I just want to pause there for a little bit because we're picking up the same themes, right? Zechariah talks about the salvation that's coming, the, the horn of salvation that's been raised up. But it's really this phrase here. Depending on what translation you're reading, by the way, the ESV says he's remembered his steadfast love. Depending on what translation you're reading, it could also talk about his mercy or his enduring mercy or his constant mercy. It is the word kesed in Hebrew, which carries all of those things, by the way. That's why it's translated differently sometimes, because it carries the idea of love. It carries the idea of compassion, compassionate mercy. It also carries the idea of faithfulness, by the way. This enduring aspect. That's why the ESV has chosen to say steadfast love. It is the enduring, compassionate mercy of God. By the way, quick trip down the history line of the humanity and see if we need any kind of enduring, compassionate mercy of God in our lives. I think I've made reference to this numbers of times, but one of the things that's been good for me as a pastor, as an adult pastor, I've, I've been uh, just uh, helping our children with schooling. I teach them history and geography and those kind of things. And a couple of years ago, we were going through uh, history with, uh, I think it was would have been my two oldest at the time. Uh, they were in grade school. But, and we, we read from this, our history book was this book called The Story of the World. And it just had all kinds of, it just has this, this ongoing unfolding history. 
But what became obvious to us as we went through an entire school year of tracing history is that you just have this ongoing endless cycle of these people rose to power, they oppressed these people, these people didn't like it, they broke free, they rose to power, and there's all kinds of fighting and bloodletting and all kinds of just, just all kinds of conflict, and it just goes on and on and on. And finally, I remember thinking to myself, and then my kids actually vocalized it, like, are we ever going to get to a story where some nation or some kingdom or some group of people come to power and do it right? And did we ever? Ha! <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. Do you think we need the compassionate, enduring, ongoing mercy of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why the psalmist starts off by singing to the Lord a new song. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. But actually, there's a second phrase at the end of that. I didn't read all the way to the end of the verse. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Remember what was the promise that God was making to Abraham? Sure, it was land, people, offspring. But it was also that in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All the peoples of the world will be blessed. The psalmist echoes that, by the way, by saying that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Zechariah is going to echo that as he talks about raising up a horn of salvation, that the mercy as promised our fathers has now been given to us. We're going to get to more of that here in just a little bit. But I, before I go on, I want to just read a couple more verses from Psalm 98 because I think they can be a practical application to us for our holidays. Verse 4, it goes on to say, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. You see, when Jesus came and what we celebrate at Christmas time, it's a little baby being born, but it's the king that was born, right? When the wise men approached from the east, they came to Herod. They said, hey, we have seen his star. There's a king that has been born. When they came actually to see Jesus, they said, where is this king that has been born? He has come as a king. He came lowly, and he came in a manger, and he came in the, in the most squalid conditions you and I might imagine for a, birth to be, uh, for a baby to become he came very much unannounced from the perspective of most kings of the world. But don't be deceived. He's a king nonetheless. And in these verses in Psalm 98, it says that we should make a joyful noise. We should sing. We should celebrate it because we want to worship the king. And if I could suggest to us, again, last week I tried to do this a little bit, that one practical outworking of this text for us at Christmas time is that we should joyously celebrate the coming of Jesus with singing, with glad singing, with rejoicing. It refers to some musical instruments, but the point of it is that we worship vocally, gladly, this king that has been born. It is why we should sing joyfully, uh, not just every Sunday morning, we certainly should then too, but the songs of the season. You know, we hear them every year, and I, I told you last week some of my my scroogeness, and so sometimes I, you know, I got tired of singing the same songs again, like we have to sing these songs, but it's totally backwards, it's totally wrong. With joy we sing these songs, they announce the coming of the king. Let's do that at Christmas time. Well, 
I want to return to the Gospel of Luke, but not quite to the section that we are in, because before John the Baptist was born, before Zechariah utters his prophecy, there was another event that unfolded, and it's actually the announcement of the coming of the Messiah. It's when the angel comes and visits this little girl, this young lady named Mary, and tells her that God's favor is resting upon her, and that she's going to be with child, she's going to conceive through the Holy Spirit, and she shall call him Jesus. She questions how this works. Uh, and God and the angel says, with God, nothing is impossible. And Mary, bless her heart, bless her faithful heart, says, may it be to me as the Lord has said. Uh, may this, uh, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And then she goes and visits Elizabeth, who, of course, is pregnant with John. And in Luke chapter 1, I just want to read to you Mary's song of praise because they reflect and pick up some of the same themes that Zechariah has said which means there are themes we should be paying attention to as you celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. Well, starting in verse 46, actually. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. By the way, that comes right out of Psalm 98. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary picks up the same theme when she goes to see uh, uh, Elizabeth and, and John, uh, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, leaps at the sound of Mary's voice and she tells her the good news of that Jesus. She's pregnant with Jesus and then she brings out this song of praise and the theme she picks up is the very same thing that we've been talking about this morning, is that God is showing his mercy to us. I put the specific verse up here that has the word mercy in it, but honestly, all the rest of those verses after that have to do with mercy, have to do with how God is pouring out his mercy. He takes those who think they're up here and brings them down, but those who are down here, he lifts them up. Those who are empty, he fills, and those who have plenty, he sends away empty-handed. He is helping his servant because he's remembering his mercy. The steadfast, enduring, compassionate, loving mercy of God is finding its ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. Because it is at that moment when God has seen our greatest need and has said, the time has come that I will meet that need. The time has come when I will put into, into motion what I have what I have designed from the beginning, from before the beginning, actually, from before the creation of the world, Scripture tells us, that I will demonstrate just how compassionate my mercy really is. Zechariah tries to pick up on that theme, by the way. As I flip back to our text where we, were at this, uh, we started off this morning, he tries to pick up on that theme because he continues, as he talks about his excuse me, his specific child that's going to come and prepare the way for this Messiah, for Jesus. He's going to give knowledge of salvation. 
And he refers again, and this time he says, because of the tender mercy of our God. He strengthens it, by the way. He uses the same word, mercy, but the word tender, the word splunknen, it means it comes from down here in your bowels. His compassionate mercy. It's like he does a double, like a, a double superlative, like he's trying to really make, emphasize how merciful God is being because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. I said, referred to this last week, but again, it's the, that, that moment when the sun begins to peak up and you begin to realize things are about to change. And actually, that's the example that John, I'm sorry, that Zechariah is using with the, with the birth of John. He said, it's, it's like I'm trying to think of the best way to communicate what it's like when God visits and his mercy begins to come to us. And the best example I can give you is when you are in the darkest of night. You are in the darkest of night and the sunrise begins to come. The sunrise begins to peak. And as it does so, it begins to give light to those who are sitting in darkness. Of course, the theme of light and darkness is all through Scripture because it is such a vivid picture of the difference between God and us. It is such a vivid picture of God's hope and His mercy and His love and His compassion and His faithfulness and His grace to us contrasted with all the dark, ugly things that come out of us. Our deceitful hearts that are selfish and arrogant and proud and full of vengeance and hate and envy and spite and lies and anger. But the sunrise is coming, Zechariah said. The light is beginning to pierce the darkness and those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death will find a way to have their feet led into the way of peace. Once again, given the construction of those words, we must acknowledge that the Prince of Peace, that the peace announced just a few verses later when Jesus is born, glory to God in the highest and earth, peace among men, that that peace is far more than the absence of conflict. Because people sitting in darkness aren't so interested in the absence of conflict as they're interested in some kind of hope, some kind of unity, some kind of, some kind of perfection coming that leads them out of what feels hopeless and confusing. The message is no different. Chris, I appreciated your prayer this morning during our, uh, uh, at the end of our sharing time. It is a season that is tough for many people. For whatever reasons, I think chief among those reasons is the season that our enemy is very, very active. He loves to remind us. It's because, I believe it's because it's the season that is meant for the opposite purpose, to remind us that our help has come, that Jesus was born. So the enemy's going to play, he's going to try to offset in everything he can. But it's a season where many people feel lonely, and they see, feel as if they're sitting in darkness, So may we combat that this year with the words of Zechariah. For the coming of Jesus Christ is the announcement that the sun is beginning to peek through. That the darkness will not abide forever, but that light has come. I remind you again today, I have made no reference to this yet, but I remind you again today that even this story is a is a, an overlaying or is a pointer to the story that is yet going to unfold. This God who keeps his promises over the millennia. How long has it been now since Jesus was born? 
And how long do we await our Savior coming from heaven to take us home? I can tell you, it is the very same words of hope and encouragement of the, because of the tender mercy of God that I give you today, that the sun is beginning to rise. The darkness will not abide forever, but that those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death will have our feet being led, being guided into the way of peace. Ultimate reunion with our Father. That day is coming. These words reflect not only the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, but they reflect the coming of Jesus Christ the second time. The coming that we still await. It is as we feel as if we are in darkness, or we feel like our sin cannot be overcome, or we feel like there's no way forward, or there's things outside of our control, or there's things that uh, we wish uh, would be happening differently, or there's, we just don't know what else is going on, the confusion that we think. It is in the context of that that the good news of Christmas comes piercing through and the light of the world being born into darkness is the good news of Jesus. May I give you one more practical application? I didn't read those verses. But in John, the Gospel of John, it's made clear that when light came into the darkness, that the darkness did not accept it, but rejected the light. So there's admonition there for us that uh, as we are celebrating Christmas with our families and exchanging gifts and doing all kinds of stuff that we all do traditionally at Christmas time, may we not forget that the primary goal of light coming into darkness is that the darkness would accept that light and be purified by that light and be taken from the kingdom of darkness, that we would be taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, whom God loves, as Colossians. Paul would write to the Colossians. I was struck just this morning as I was praying in preparation for this, and so I had not built this in, but I just was struck. We just came through reading the book of Nehemiah, studying the book of Nehemiah recently on a Sunday mornings, and as the people of Israel were returning and they prayed and were going to make a covenant of, of uh, themselves back to God again, they pick up on this theme of the tender mercy of God. And I just want to read this verse because they do a little history lesson. You remember this from Nehemiah chapter 9. They do a little history lesson. And the history lesson goes a little bit like this. This is a bit of my paraphrase. But it goes a little bit like this. God did incredibly wonderful things in our life and then we turned away and did our own stuff. And then God rescued us. And then we turned away again, and then God rescued us again, and then we turned away again, and then God rescued us again, and then, and just goes back and forth like that. That no matter all the wonderful things that God has done for us, we continue to kind of go our own selfish ways. But in the midst of that, Nehemiah chapter 9, end of verse 17, they reflect this because this is the truth of God. This is why the truth is that when God visits us, we receive mercy. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. In many, many ways, brothers and sisters, in many, many ways, even those words prayed by those exiles long, 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 long before Jesus came, those words came true when Jesus came. That God is a Gracious and merciful God, ready to forgive, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and not forsaking those who have gone their own way. In preparation for next week, I invite you to consider 
the places in your life that you have gone your own way. They might be current. I hope they're not, but they might be current or even just in the past. Places that you've gone your own way where you were in need of God's mercy. Next week, we'll talk about the greatest way that God showed mercy, but God shows mercy to us in all kinds of ways. We heard this morning just a testimony of, of health returning. But he shows his mercy in all kinds of ways. So this doesn't have to be big things where you were in some drastic, like, live-or-die moment. But it can be in the smallest, most seemingly insignificant ways where you were in desperate need of help or you made your own choice or something came against you. May the Lord bring those to mind for us. And I want to make one more comment this morning as we close. And I just want to fit it in. Merv, you said this phrase a couple of times and I just had to think of the text this morning and to think of what we believe and think of the sneakiness of our enemy. You know, when you were laying there in a the bed and you were being pressed in hard about with the things the enemy was bringing against you and you said this phrase a couple of times about not being good enough and you know, the enemy is... Very sneaky and very deceitful, isn't he? If you're paying attention to the beginning of my message and where we went, you know, there's a bit of truth to that statement, actually. I'm not good enough. I'm not. But the truth that the enemy forgets all the time is that there was a sinless, unblemished lamb that was shed, shed his blood for you and I. And he was good enough. And when we're hidden in him, that's when we can tell Satan, no way. No way. If that does not illustrate how much we need the tender mercy of God, I don't know what will. God, thank you so much for your text this morning, but thank you just for putting together a service like this and blessing us with your presence encouraging us with your goodness, reminding us of the fight that we have against the enemy of our souls, but also on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are struggling, and reminding us more than anything that when you sent Jesus Christ into this world, it is like the sun coming up after the darkest, blackest of night. And those of us who sit in darkness, and we've all been there at different times of our, of our lives, but those of us who sit in darkness have seen a light shining. His name is Jesus and we come to that light, and we cling to that light, and we hide ourselves in that light, and we say, Jesus, may your light shine in us and around us, purify us, drive out all the darkness. We want to dwell in light even as you are light, Jesus. And I thank you, I thank you, I thank you, God, that when you saw our need, you visited us and gave us mercy when we did not deserve it. May we, may we major on that this year in Christmas time. All, all these things, everything, all the goodness we experience. God, it's because you have visited us and have given us your tender mercy. You have kept your promise from long ago and have sent Jesus. May he be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.